0: Well, let's get back to our to our study. Again, I hope, um, I hope that in that brief flyover, I didn't intimidate some of you. I hope you understand that that's just a little toe in the water of how helpful the, the block diagramming issue can be as you look at, at identifying the syntax, the flow of the author's thought and meaning. That's where we want to pick up now as we think about our teachings. We're Remember, we're in exegesis. This is where you're digging into the text to see what it means. And we've done our preparation. We're ready. And now we're at the heart of exegesis, which is observation. So far, we've considered these steps. Remember, you know, the big picture of where it is in Scripture, how it relates. Make sure you know the general introduction of the book, all the things about the author and audience and so forth. Read through the book multiple times and then see where the breaks are, where the units of thought are, following um, your original language resources, following your English resources, um, and make sure you know those units of thought. That all comes before you begin studying the book, or much of it comes before you begin studying the book. Now you're, you're in your weekly study saying, okay, I need to prepare for Sunday. I need to prepare for the message it begins really with this fifth step in observation, and that is analyze the syntax. Wednesday morning, when I'm studying, I study on Wednesday for Sunday morning, and uh, every Wednesday morning, the very first thing I do, if I haven't already done it for that, that paragraph, is I sit down at my computer, and I copy the Greek text to a file, and I do a block diagram of that Greek text. Again, you can do it in English, if a good English translation if you don't know the original language, but… That becomes the heart of my exegetical work. So you start then with analyzing the syntax to get the flow of the author's thought, as I just showed you with a couple of brief examples. The next step is to identify a preliminary theme. The biblical text has only one unchangeable meaning, and that meaning is determined by the author. A text or a passage may have many different implications, even legitimate applications, but only one meaning, or as Kaiser calls it, only one single truth intention. What is the basic message of the paragraph reduced to one simple sentence? That's what you're after here. You've done your block diagram, you see the flow of thought. Now you want, in one sentence, to say, This is what this paragraph is about, this is what it's teaching. Our job as students is to find the author's central theme, understand how he develops that theme, and and to write it down on our study sheet. Now, at this point, understand that this theme is tentative. You haven't done all the rest of your study yet, so this is preliminary. That's why I put that word there. It's a key word. You're just taking a first stab, based on what you've done so far, at the point of that paragraph. Now, there's only one. How do you identify this preliminary theme? Well, sometimes it's directly stated in the paragraph. Earlier, I took you to 1 Timothy 4. When you look at that paragraph, 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16, the theme comes in the last verse where he says, pay close attention to yourself, and that's discussed in verses 6 to 12 and to your teaching, that's discussed in verses 13 to 16. So sometimes, somewhere in the paragraph, it's clearly stated. And again, I love it when that happens because it it just makes life simple. If you're doing Romans 1, 16, and 17, that's pretty easy, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There it is. And everything else explains why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Um, And there are many other examples. So sometimes it's directly stated other times, the theme of that paragraph is contained in the words of the concepts repeated. I remember when I was teaching through Ephesians a number of years ago now, and, um, and I was struck as I, as I worked through the Greek text of, of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, which is, by the way, a single sentence in the Greek text. And I was, I was struck by the fact that again and again and again, the words are concepts for will. Decision. Uh, those sorts of things occur in that text. And, and so what you have there in a concise stated form is the will or purpose of God, which by the way I believe is the theme of the book of Ephesians. We can argue about that later. But but the the point is in that paragraph, it's clear, because of the repeated words and concepts, what that paragraph is about. Sometimes it's discerned from the context. For example, if you're teaching through Ephesians four, verse twenty-five and following, where he says, "You know, put put this off and put this on. Don't 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 uh, lie one to another. Uh, speak truth one to another." And then he goes on to give a series of things. Well, in the context, if you go back to the verses there before it, you immediately understand that he's just explained the process of sanctification, that we are to put off those things that relate to the old life, we're to be renewed in our thinking by the Scripture, the grid through which we see the world, and we're to put on these new ways of thinking and these new behaviors. And beginning in verse 25, he gives example after example of what that looks like. So sometimes it's the context in terms of identifying the theme. So those are the things you're looking for as you look to, to make sure you know exactly what the theme is so you identify a preliminary theme you've looked at the block diagram you've identified a preliminary theme again those are the first two things i do when i sit down to study a text do a block diagram so i see the flow of the author's thought and then come up with a preliminary sentence what is this about the next step is to make observations and ask questions of the text My father-in-law was a theology professor for 50 years. He ended his career at Master's University, and um, he once gave his students a project for theology class. He had them read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, just two verses, and then he gave them this assignment. I want you to go home, and I want you to write 25 facts or observations that you can legitimately draw from those verses, just two verses. And, of course, college students, what did they do? They groaned. That's impossible. We can't do that. But they went and did it. They were fairly pleased with themselves. The next time they met, he gave them their next assignment. It was to find an additional 25 points from those two verses. This time, they're like screams of agony. But guess what? They went home, they did it. Came back, presented that assignment. Third time, he said, I want you to find 25 more legitimate observations that can be made from those two verses. And they did it. They added together all of their distinct observations that were legitimately possible from those two verses, and they tallied almost 175 different thoughts that they agreed could be drawn from those two verses. And so this is what you need to do, not 175, but you need to to probe into those verses, asking questions, questions and making observations. Ask questions of the text as if you had no idea what it actually teaches. Um, Gordon Fee, in his excellent book on, on New Testament interpretation, says this, the key to good exegesis is the ability to ask the right questions of the text in order to get at the author's intended meaning. What are the questions? Well, think of it as the five W's and an h who what where when why and how what do i mean well questions like these who wrote it who said it who's the main character who's in this account to whom is it written about whom is it written so you answer the question who the question what what are the major ideas what's the main theme what are the main events what are the important lessons where where did this happen where will it happen where was it said Where is the author when he writes? Where are his recipients that are receiving it? When did this happen? When was it written? And then why is it important? Why include that detail? Why did he write so much about this? Why should we do what's commanded here? And how? How can this be done? How should it be done? How is the truth illustrated? You get the idea. You're asking questions and you're looking for answers in the text to see what the text can teach you. You also just make observations. As you're thinking through, meditating on, studying a passage, you're going to begin to see things jump out at you. You're going to see key words. You're going to see key topics, key people, commands, etc. And you want to you document those. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, you know, I thought it was simpler than this. You know, we live in an instant fast food microwave culture, and the process of study that I'm talking about is out of sync with the culture. We want a gourmet meal from the Scripture, but we're only willing to invest the time and effort to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It takes time, effort, and work. So yes, these these are not what I'm talking to you about, these steps I'm giving you, this is not something I sort of conjured up out of my own head. Much of this comes from what I've learned sitting at the feet of others. And so this is how we study. This is how we study the text. So make observations and ask questions of the text. And you're making notes. We'll t- I'll talk about collecting your data in a minute, how, you, how to do that, sort of the stages of that But just keep tracking with me for now. Uh, An eighth part of observation is you look up all the proper nouns in your passage. You identify all the people, places, and things in your paragraph. Why is that important? Well, you need to understand it in order to explain it to others. And sometimes those little details can give you, can unlock the meaning of the text. I remember when I first studied 1 Kings 18, where you have Elijah running before the chariot of Ahab. You remember that? He ran before the chariot of Ahab to Jezreel. Well, you look at your maps and guess what? You discover that he ran, depending on the course he took, between 15 and 25 miles to Jezreel ahead of the chariot. He ran a marathon. That helps explain what then occurs in the next chapter when you see him in part, physically exhausted, and God makes him rest. So, you learn things as you look up these proper nouns that help you understand the passage. One of my favorites is in John eleven fifty four, 54, where it says, Jesus traveled to Ephraim after he raised Lazarus and they decided to kill him. You remember in John 11? It says, He goes north to Ephraim. Well, guess what? Ephraim is seven miles, just seven miles north of Jerusalem. When Jesus gets ready to go to the feast shortly thereafter, guess what route he takes? He doesn't take the direct route, the seven miles south to Jerusalem. He goes all the way up to Galilee, joins with travelers coming back down the Jordan Rift Valley to Jerusalem. And there's a really important reason. You just have to listen to the message to discover it. <laughs> but my point is, I really am going to leave you there. My, my point is, because it's longer than I can explain in, in the time I have, my point is that looking up the proper nouns will often unlock the meaning of the text for you. So don't leave this out. You can look them up in a Bible dictionary, either in your Bible software. If you really want sort of the Cadillac of Bible dictionaries, you can get the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's a set of four volumes. Or you can get the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia, which is also a set of four volumes. And those are both um, extensive in in their description of these things. Look up cross-references. The Bible is written as one book, and so you want to see what the rest of the Scripture has to say. How do you look up cross-references? Well, parallel passages are cross-references that use the same words in the original language, the NAS is a, is a great tool for that. It has some great cross-references. So just use the one that's in, if you use the American Standard, use the ones that are there. And uh, it, it'll really connect you with some great passages. If you're in the Gospels, Thomas and Gundry's Harmony of the Gospels is, is excellent because it, it will show you the different stories in the same, on the same page and what's said the same and what's said differently. You can examine that. Very helpful if you're preaching through the Gospels. If we're talking about passages that contain the same or similar ideas and concepts, there are several resources you ought to seriously consider. I use these almost every week. The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge um, is is one of the most important resources you can have. Very thorough uh, in cross references. The MacArthur Topical Bible, which is really the Tory Topical Bible, was some when I was on staff. We redid it, added about. 10% more material, it's very helpful. And then Zondervan's Dictionary of Biblical Themes is also extremely helpful. So those three resources can help you track down cross-references as you look at um, the given text and understanding it. Next, you study the key words. Why is studying key words important? Because the, the words in your text are, are the building blocks of all communication. But words are also complicated because if they've been in the language any period of time at all, they acquire a variety of senses. Take the English word cool. Just think about that word for a minute. It means temperature. It means relaxed, half-hearted, distant and uninterested, and unfriendly. That's just one word, cool. Now, to understand the paragraph that you're studying with one, of those, with one of the words in it, you have to understand two things. You have to understand the various senses of that word and the sense that's used in that text. Let me give you an example. Here is an English sentence. The leaders of the company were cool with how the board ran its affairs. Now, being English speakers, you read that and you get the idea. You know what it's talking about, right? Right? But if you break out an English dictionary and you look up the different senses of the words I've used in that sentence, you can end up with this. The leaders of the company lost body temperature with how the wood went upstream to spawn its illicit sexual relationships. No, I'm serious. Look at that. Those are all real senses of those words. So, if all you do is pull out your dictionary and pick a sense, you can end up with that. Because words have senses in different contexts. Your goal in this part of your study is to decide what the keywords in your passage can mean and which meaning your author intended in that passage. Usually, words only have a single sense in a particular passage. John will occasionally use kind of a double meaning in his gospel, but that's rare. Most of the time, words have a single sense. So let's talk about studying key words. First of all, how do you identify the words you ought to study? Well, words that play a key role in the passage. If you're preaching Romans 1, you come across ashamed, guess what? That's a word you need to make sure you understand. Wrath, depraved, those are all key words in those texts. Or words that occur frequently in that book or that author. Like John often uses light. You need to understand what light is um, in his context. Romans, the word righteousness, you need to understand what that means. So words that occur frequently in that book or author. And words that are major biblical words. Words like justified or justification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, faith big biblical words. You need to make sure that you study them and you understand them. So how exactly do you, or or the the final one, I should say, is words that could significantly affect the meaning of that particular passage as you're studying it. Now, how do you study them? Well, first of all, if if you know Greek and Hebrew, look them up in your Greek and Hebrew lexicons, and I've listed some familiar ones there. If you haven't had the biblical languages yet or don't have that capacity, many of the dictionaries are tied to like Strong's Concordance. And now with Bible software, all you have to do is hover your cursor over it and it pops up. So there are, there are ways to get there if you don't have that experience. But you want to you do that um, and see what they mean in those resources. Then you want to do a concordance search. That is, you just look at where that word occurs You start within the same book, right, within that book you're studying, then within other books written by the same author to see, let's say you're studying Paul, you want to see how he uses that same word in another of his letters, then within the same biblical chronology. Words change over time, right? Take the English word gay. That word has changed over time. So the same thing was true in biblical times. So when you're studying a word, you start with studying that word in its same biblical chronology, the same time period. What other books were written during that period of time where that word was used? And then ultimately, in the entire scripture. Um, Now, in that concordance search, what are you looking for? Well, you're looking for the various senses of the word. How is this word used? Like the word cool I gave you a minute ago. What are the different ways that word is used? What's the connotation of the word? Sometimes words have implied emotional meanings. For example, if I say you're incorrigible, that's not the same thing as saying you have the courage of your convictions. Right? Uh, Same basic idea, but one has a negative connotation, the other positive. Or if I say you're stubborn, that's different than saying you're persistent. But the same idea is there. So you're looking for that emotional connotation. Is it used literally, figuratively? How is it used? For example, the English word green is a color, but it can also describe somebody who lacks experience. You're looking for the synonyms, the words that are used around it to help explain it. You're looking for the opposites, the antonyms. This is, by the way, where the Roman Catholic position on justification falls flat because when you look at the word justified, Guess what the antonym, the opposite is in most contexts? Justified and condemned. Those are the the opposites. Obviously, condemned doesn't mean to make someone guilty. It means to declare them guilty. So justified means not to make someone righteous, but to declare them righteous. So antonyms can help you understand that. So you do this search, and then based on the context of your paragraph, the various senses of the word, you decide the sense of the word that the author intended in your passage. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you do this with every word in your paragraph. You'll never get done. I'm saying you choose the really important words that might affect the meaning and that you don't already understand. All right? But it's it's important to do this you'll have a good grasp of the, the words, and words are where the meaning. Words and syntax, that's where the meaning is. The relationship of phrases and clauses and the meaning of words. Now, what are the dangers to avoid in word studies? And these are really important because a lot of people just getting into word studies make these. First of all, don't be misled by the root fallacy. You know, you, you hear a word came from something and you make it mean that. Well, that doesn't even work in English. All right, do you know the word enthusiasm originally meant possessed by the gods? Nobody today is saying that person has enthusiasm and means they're possessed by the gods. All right, so words leave their original connotations and move on in the original languages just as they do today. So be careful of the root fallacy. Do you know the Latin word from which nice comes means ignorant? Ignorant. Think about that. A second, a second danger is reading all the senses of the word into that one passage. In other words, you just kind of dump, and you, you take the, I forget what that Bible is called, parallel Bible, I think, where it just dumps every synonym into the passage, and you, you read them all. You don't do that. That's not proper use of language. We don't do that in our language. Here's, here's a really common one when you're first getting started. Choosing the sense you like best of all the ones you found, regardless of the context. You don't get to decide the sense of the word. You're trying to determine what the author means. Another is reading the meaning of the English word back into the Greek or Hebrew word. It's legitimate to acknowledge that the Greek word for power, dunamis, is so powerful that when the inventors of dynamite decided to name their product, they called it that. But it's not legitimate to say that Paul was talking about dynamite when he used that word giving a word the exact same sense every time it occurs. For example, the word law. The word law can refer to the legislation at Sinai, to the first five books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament books that are not the prophets, the entire Old Testament are a rule or a principle. So don't make it the same thing every time. That's not true in English, and it's not true in the original languages the Scripture was written in. So, word studies. What do your words mean, the key words? Another step in observation is study the historical context. And by the way, these can all happen very quickly. This, this little list here I'm giving you at the end, this doesn't have to take days. Um, we're talking, you know, you give an hour to this to try to track down these things and understand them. Um, the historical context. To fully understand a narrative or a didactic portion of Scripture you often have to understand the circumstances in which it was written. I remember several years ago, I was talking to one of our younger staff members, 25-year-old staff member, and I was talking about the Northridge earthquake, which Sheila and my wife got caught in, the 94 earthquake, and it was, it was some ride. And, and I said to this, to this uh, co-worker here at the church, I said, boy, it was an e-ticket ride. And he looked at me like, what, what are you talking about? What planet are you from? What do you mean, e-ticket ride? Well, here's the deal. Until the early 1980s, when you visited Disneyland or Disney World, uh, you couldn't ride every ride as often as you chose. You received a book of tickets, and there were, there were A tickets, B tickets, C tickets, E t- uh, you know, and so forth. It, the best tickets were the E tickets. And you only had a certain number of E tickets. And there were certain rides that were designated as E rides, the best rides. And you could only ride those rides as many E-tickets as you had. So you were bartering with your friends. You know, I'll give you two C-tickets for a, You know, you're, you're trying to work this out because you want to ride that ride again. So when I said it was an E-ticket ride, I meant it was a wild ride. It was the best ride. But he didn't understand that. That only happened 40 years ago and was common knowledge at the time. But when I referenced it to a 25-year-old, he had no idea what it meant. You see how quickly historical context is lost? Well, think about this. Scripture was written between 2,000 and 3,500 years ago, so historical context becomes even more important. The historical context deals with the circumstances in history in which that passage occurred, either the author's own historical setting or the circumstances in which he writes. How can you study the historical background of a given text Well, you can go to outside sources, secular encyclopedias. I often use reputable encyclopedias like Encyclopedia Britannica or something like that. Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, history texts. I'm a a lover of history. Um, Trustworthy, that's the key word there, internet sites. What I mean by that, there's a lot of difference between the trustworthiness of comments, let's say, about the first Thanksgiving that are on the Plymouth Plantation site versus somebody's blog. Big difference. So you're looking for trustworthy sites. Um, You say, well, what is this? how does this help? Well, I'll just give you one example that I remember just jumped out at me when I was studying through Exodus and when I compared it to Hebrews. You remember in Hebrews 11, it says, Moses forsook all the treasures of Egypt, considering the reproach of the Messiah to be greater than all of those riches. Well, that sounds pretty impressive, and it is until you understand where he fell in Egyptian history. It's very possible, some would say even likely, that Moses was adopted by Hapshepsut. Hapshepsut was the most powerful woman in Egyptian history. He was a breath from being the pharaoh of Egypt. And he said, I choose the Messiah. You see how that opens up your understanding and enriches your understanding of the text. You remember in Daniel 5 when they're having the party in, the, the, uh, in Babylon and the Medo-Persians are outside the walls? Again, that sounds like they're thumbing their nose the Medo-Persians. Well, when you know the, the, about the, the, the city of Babylon, it's even more impressive. When you understand there was a double wall system, that the outer wall was 12 miles in circumference, 84 feet thick. You could ride two chariots on top of it. It was at least 175 feet high, a 15-story building in height, guard towers every 150 feet. Then there was an inner wall, and then there was a moat by diverting the Euphrates River around the city. Yeah, they felt pretty secure. And when you understand that historical background, now you understand what's going on in Daniel 5. It enriches your understanding. Sometimes you can... Understand the historical context from the scripture itself. One example, you're teaching Ephesians, Ephesians 1.1, to the saints in Ephesus. Well, guess what? You can go back to Acts, chapter 18, and you can read about the saints in Ephesus, and that informs your understanding of the people to whom he's writing. Understanding historical context adds depth and richness to your understanding of the passage. Next, establish the theological context. Establish the theological context. Identify any significant theological issues in the passage. For example, when I came to Romans 1, 1 to 7, guess what theological issues are in that passage? The nature of an apostle, the hypostatic union, that is the union of the two natures in Christ, the kenosis, the eternal sonship of Christ, the nature of saving faith, and the effectual versus the general call. All of that is in the first seven verses of Romans. So you're looking as you're studying your passage to say, what are the theological issues in this passage? Then you study those concepts in the rest of Scripture and other resources. A great resource, by the way, that's not uh, hasn't come out too long ago is the the condensed version of biblical doctrines that came out from the Master's Seminary. There's one called Essential Doctrine. It's like um, it's a shorter version, a condensed version, easy to get through in a hurry for the issues you're looking for for this sort of study. So I'd recommend it to you. Um, and then you explain. You decide how much of that theological concept needs to be explained for that passage to be clear. Let me say this clearly don't tell your people everything you know about that theological issue that you just learned. You have to decide what do they need to know to understand this passage, and you tell them that, okay? So this is is important. The reason this is important is over time, it builds a theological grid that will build your people up and that will protect them from theological error. So there you have it. That's observation. Now, you'll notice on that red, that red line I have, the first four items above it, all of those happen before you do your weekly study. So what you're really doing every week in the exegetical side of it is you're doing the final numbers there, five through 12. You're analyzing the syntax, with the block diagram, you're identifying the theme, observations, questions, looking up proper nouns, looking up cross-references, looking at whatever the keywords are and studying them, making sure there's nothing historical that needs to, you need to know about, and then are there any theological issues you need to touch on that are in your passage. That is observation. That's what you do every week. When you finish those steps, let me tell you, you will have a good understanding of what the passage says. This step is called exegesis. Now, when you get experienced in this, It only takes, even for a paragraph, you're talking about, um, for all of that, for me, I would say that's done. I start at 6 a.m. on Wednesday. I would say those steps are done by 9.30 or 10. So we're not talking days to do those things, but they're all important steps. They're all crucial to understand that passage. So, So far, we've looked at preparation, but the bulk of what we've studied is observation. That's the heart of exegesis. But exegesis doesn't end there. There is a third step, and it is meditation. Meditation. This is where you internalize, think about, reflect on what you've learned in your exegesis. You know, in our computer age, there's so much information that's available to us. I'm about to date myself here for some of you who younger, but, but I remember the first time I got a CD that had several books on it. That was impressive. Now they're talking about increasingly condensed storage so that there's even talk of molecular storage in which the entire contents of the Library of Congress could be stored in the space the size of a sugar cube. As Christians, there's so much information available to us. But unfortunately, there's a huge gap between what we know and what we practice. So how do we get there? How, what takes us from knowledge to practice? Well, the answer is meditation. And let me show you why this is true. Meditation. When you look at the scripture You learn that meditation is important because, as Joshua 1.8 tells us, it is a tool that helps us move from reading and study to putting God's Word into practice. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law. Of course, at this point, what are we talking about? We're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all he had. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Now, it's possible that refers to the to your teaching the law to others. But I think it's more likely that it's a reference to reading. In the ancient world, people read out loud. Uh, Acts 8, 30, you remember, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah out loud. Made for a mess at the library, but that's what they did. And so he says, don't let the Scriptures depart from your constant reading. By the way, this was the responsibility of the kings. You remember in Deuteronomy 17, it said the king was to make a copy of God's law. He was to read it every day. That's what he's talking about here. Why? Well, he ends the verse by saying, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. What's the bridge between knowing, reading and knowing, and doing? What's in the middle of that verse? Meditation. Meditation is the biblical bridge between merely knowing the content of Scripture and actually living it out. And Joshua 1.8 makes it clear that it's a tool to that end. Same thing as in Psalm 1. I won't take you there, but you remember in Psalm 1, he says, blessed, Uh, the Hebrew word is, oh, to be envied. It's like a third person looking at a person's relationship to God and going, wow, I I wish I had that. Blessed. Oh, to be envied is the man. And then he describes the righteous man in three negatives. And those negatives together mean he abandons all the world's wisdom. And then he describes him positively in one attitude and one action. Listen to what he says He says, But his delight, the word means to take pleasure in, his delight is in the law of the Lord, all of Scripture. And he meditates in it day and night. So this this is foundational to our spiritual health and growth. Meditation in the scripture. What is it? Well, again, just shortly to give you a summary, when you look at the biblical words, you can find all three primary biblical words for meditation in one verse. And I just mentioned the verse because it's a good, good hook to hang them on. Psalm 143, verse 5. There you meet the three biblical words, Hebrew words, that are often used for meditation. The first is remember, it means to deliberately reminisce and think about something. Meditate, it means to have a kind of internal discussion. And muse means to deeply reflect on a matter in one's mind. And again, I could take you through all the defense of that and show you examples, but I don't think that's necessary. I want you to get the big picture. Meditation involves a determined choice to recall something to mind, an internal discussion, and deep reflection. What's all the deep thinking trying to accomplish? Well, we get another clue. We're going to define the word, but let me first give you another clue. Not only do we see something about it in the biblical words, but we also understand more about meditation by looking at the results. There are two basic results from meditation. The first is insight. Psalm 119, verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers. And the Hebrew word for insight is is the ability to know how to use the knowledge you've accumulated. It's not just accumulating more information. It's how to use it. I have more insight than all my teachers because your statutes are my meditation. Meditation brings insight. How does that work? Well, theologically, it's called illumination. It's the Spirit's illumination. And how does that illumination happen? In meditation. What is illumination? I love J.I. Packer's definition. Listen to this. It is not a giving of new revelation, but a work within us that enables us to grasp and to love the revelation that is there before us in the biblical text as heard and read and is explained by teachers and writers. Illumination is thus the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. That's illumination. And when and how does that happen? It happens in meditation. You get insight from meditation. What's it like? Well, think of it this way. If you walk into a great European cathedral at night and you look at the stained glass windows, you can understand basically what's going on, right? I mean, you can see the, the story that's represented there. You can see the colors. You get the idea. But what if you walk into that cathedral the next morning when the sun's blazing through that stained glass window and it just comes to life? It's breathtaking, beautiful, attractive, That's what the Spirit does in illumination. He turns the light on behind the page. God's Word becomes real to us. It becomes attractive. It becomes desirable. We get it and we love it. The Holy Spirit brings that illumination. And when and how does he bring that illumination? In meditation. That's one of the primary results. Another is application. This is the other result from, from meditation is the application of truth. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. It's interesting. In Psalm 1, you know, in, in the, the word that's used in Psalm 1.2, he meditates on it day and night, that same Hebrew word occurs in chapter 2, verse 1, but it's translated devises. People are devising a plan. So it means to create a plan in order to carry it out. That's one of the results of meditation. So let's let's put all of that together with a definition. Here's meditation. Biblical meditation is deliberately choosing to think deeply about a passage of Scripture in order to one better understand it there's the insight and two to plan how to do it that's meditation it's deliberate choosing to focus your thoughts to that end honestly it's like it's like tea I I wanna ask for tea versus Starbucks drinkers but but with tea imagine you are the hot water and the tea bag is God's Word Reading and studying is like dipping the tea bag into the water and pulling it out. It tinges the water, but it doesn't permeate it. But when you put that tea bag in the water and you leave it, that's like meditation, and it, it permeates it, and it changes its character. By the way, this skill is not con- confined to the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words remain in you, then you can ask what you wish and it will be done for you. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. What do you meditate on? Well, you meditate primarily on God's word, but also on what you learn about God's works in creation and providence. You know, Psalm 145, 5, on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And God's character, Psalm 145, 5, goes on to say, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, I will meditate. So you think about God, you think about his works, and mostly you think about his word. You deliberately choose to meditate on his word. But how exactly does it happen? Well, let me just say it begins by the study we did. You can't meditate on what you don't understand. So you have to do the hard work of the study. Um, I'm going to give you some specific methods. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not original with me. I've adapted some of these from Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney, but frankly they're not original with him either. This is just a short list of what saints have done through the centuries to meditate on the Word Let me challenge you to deliberately set aside time to do this. For me, back to my study practice. I study through the morning on Wednesday for Sunday morning, and I have lunch, and then often I take time to meditate. Sometimes it's in a walk. Sometimes it's sitting at my desk. But I think deliberately and deeply, choose to think through that passage in order to better understand it and to plan how to do it. And this is where it changes me. In fact, let me just stop here and preach a little sermon. I'll tell you this. The weeks when I don't spend the deliberate time in meditation, I end up being nothing more than a hypodermic needle, delivering the medicine to others but unaffected myself. But when I take time in meditation, I'm changed in the process. So you have to do it deliberately. So what are the methods? Well, let me show you using a simple proverb, Proverbs 15.1. Proverbs 15.2. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. First of all, ask important questions of the passage. For example, what's the scenario in that proverb? Well, something has happened. I probably caused it. It's made someone else very angry. The angry person is confronting me, and here's the command I'm supposed to respond in a certain way. Okay, so you ask questions of the passage. Secondly, you make general observations about the text. When I look at that proverb, I learn that what I say deeply affects others, that there is both good and bad communication, that how I say what I say is important. Gentle has as much to do with manner as it does content. Particular words I choose can hurt others. Harsh word is literally a word that causes pain. Disagreements can be resolved. Anger can be turned away. But disagreements improperly handled escalate into settled conflict. Stirs up has the idea of escalating conflict. So you see, I'm just making observations about this text. Repeat it in different ways. A gentle Answer turns away wrath. 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 Now, you're not just repeating it mindlessly. It's like you're turning the verse to see the different facets of a jewel. You're thinking about how each of those words fits into that context, but you're deliberately focusing on the next word in that sentence. Write it in your own words. For Proverbs 15.1, I did this. A meek and gracious response to someone who is angry calms them, but responding in kind with anger and attacks will make them even matter. So write it out in your own words. That forces you to digest the meaning. Pray through the text. You should always do this. We should turn the Scripture into prayer. So you should take what you learned there and turn it into a prayer For example, this is just the. I wrote an entire prayer. I'll just read you the first few lines. Lord, you've commanded me to love others as I love myself, but I confess that much too often my tongue becomes an instrument of pain, hurt, and discouragement for my family, my friends, and sometimes even people I don't know. Lord, forgive me and help me to pursue your way and how I speak to others and so forth. Turn it into a prayer. Pray through the text. And then finally, it's a, in meditation, think through specific ways to apply these truths to your circumstances. When I'm on my little walk after my morning of study, I'm not saying, what do I want to preach to my congregation? I'm saying, Lord, what am I supposed to do with this text? How am I supposed to respond to the truth I've learned? What do I need to do? What do I need to change? How do I need to think differently? So in the case of Proverbs 15:1. This starts really close to home. Start with your spouse. Start with the people that live in your house. How can I apply these things to me? This is meditation. And again, let me just underscore, I I haven't spent a lot of time on this issue, but it is crucial if you are going to be changed and affected by the truth and to your deeper understanding of it and your application of it, okay? Let's move on. So we've looked at... Preparation, observation, meditation. The next step is interpretation. Interpretation. A couple of years ago, I was teaching my daughters, several years ago now, I was teaching my daughters the basics of Bible study. And I, I, I decided I wanted them to understand how Christians abuse the Bible. And so I landed on the idea of a parable, a sort of lived out parable in my house where they'd catch the point and so I'm not recommending you do this, but I, I decided one morning to tell my kids, look, at, we, have our, we had our Bible time after breakfast when the kids were younger and they were all home. And, and so I said, look, you don't need to bring your Bibles this morning. I have something I want to share with you from the Dallas Morning News. There's an article I read that really touched my heart, and, and I just want to share the truths that I learned there. And so they thought that was a little different, but, you know, they trust me. And so they came, and, and uh, when it was time... I broke out the Dallas Morning News, and on the front page of the newspaper, there was an article about an aging rock group. I think it was the Eagles, if I remember right, that had played at the American Airlines Center down in Dallas. And the article was about them, and it was, you know, it was just talking about their concert. But I read this article, and as I read it, I started making spiritual points from it. You know, I'd read a little paragraph, and I'd say, you know, what really struck me about this was, and I'd wax eloquent. For example, I think the article described they they read. They wore suits in the concert, and this was an unusual thing. And, and so I said, you know, there's a there's a great lesson there for us. And I took this really seriously. And I'm I'm explaining these spiritual concepts that have frankly nothing to do with the article. I'm just making them up out of my head. And at first, my daughters sort of exchanged these quizzical looks with one another. And and after a while, they became even increasingly confused. And and then it becomes uncomfortable. I, I watch them out of the corner of my eye, and they're making these, these glances at one another like, you know, something wrong with Dad? Is he sick? Is he, is he on something? And so I stopped, and I asked one of them what was bothering them. And, and very carefully and respectfully, my oldest daughter said, Dad, we just don't think that's what that article means, which was exactly what I wanted them to say. And I said what Christians always say, but that's what it means to me and I help them see that what I had just done to the Dallas Morning News is what many people do to their Bibles every day they pull something entirely out of its context and make it say something it doesn't say and they somehow find themselves spiritually warmed and filled we do not give the Bible meaning It means something whether we get it or not. It means what the original authors, both the human author and the Spirit, intended it to mean. We must not only determine what the Bible says, we must also determine what it means by what it says. Now, let me just touch on the fact that we have the right to do this. Most of us understand the principle of private interpretation, but let me just remind you, this hasn't always been true. Back with the Catholic Church, they took issue with this in the 16th century. This was a revolutionary idea. So the Council of Trent, the, the Roman Catholic response to the Reformation, said this, to check unbridled spirits, it, that is this council, decrees that no one relying on his own judgment shall in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, distorting the Holy Scripture in accordance to his own conceptions, presume to interpret them contrary to that sense which the mother church to whom it belongs has held or holds. Notice the underline, no one shall presume to interpret them contrary to that sense which the holy mother church held or holds. That's the thrust. In other words, only the magisterium, the pope in concert with the bishops has, and, and cardinals, has the right to interpret the Bible. That was the core issue of the Reformation. That's why Martin Luther said what he said at the Diet of Worms. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. God help me. The presupposition behind private interpretation is this. God has given us a book that Christians can understand. Now, don't misunderstand. Doesn't mean everything is equally easy to understand. Doesn't mean we don't have to study. Doesn't mean that we, we can come to the right knowledge of it or fully grasp it without the illumination of the Spirit. Doesn't mean that we can come up absolutely with our own interpretation. Charles Hodge responds to that. He says, if the Scriptures be a plain book and the Spirit performs the function of a teacher to all the children of God, it follows inevitably that they must agree in all essential matters in their interpretation of the Bible. And from that fact, it follows that for an individual Christian to dissent from the faith of the true body of believers is tantamount to dissenting from the Scriptures themselves. In other words, if the Holy Spirit's been teaching everybody else, then it's not likely He just taught you for the first time something contrary to what they all believed. We deny that Christ has appointed anyone or any group to whose interpretation we are bound to submit as the final authority. That's what we deny. It doesn't mean that, for example, a church can't have a shared understanding of God's Word and insist that people teaching teach that. It means that we can't bind anyone's conscience and say, you must believe what we believe. What are the arguments for private interpretation? I'll just give this to you quickly before we get to how to do it. But the obligations for faith and obedience are personal, and judgment will be personal. Therefore, it's personally that we have to understand the Scriptures. Jesus says to the people he was talking to, have you not read? He's saying, you ought to read and understand. The Scripture is almost always addressed to the people and not merely to the leadership. The prophet said, hear, O Israel, Christ taught the multitudes. Most of the epistles of the New Testament were addressed to congregations of people. Thirdly, Scripture commands God's people to study the Scripture personally and to teach it to their children, Deuteronomy 6, of course, and other places. And then, fourthly, God calls His people to evaluate what they hear taught against the teaching of Scripture, and He praises them for doing so. For example, in Acts 17 11, the, the Luke writes of the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica because what? They examined the scriptures daily to see whether what Paul taught was true. In Galatians 1 8 and 9, you, you know, where he talks about if, a, if an angel or, or an apostle were to come and to teach you a different gospel, throw him out. That implies people, God's people have a right to evaluate the teaching of an apostle or an angel, and it implies that they have a rule by which to do so, and that is the Scripture. Charles Hodge writes, the Bible is a plain book. It is intelligible by the people, and they have the right and are bound to read and interpret it for themselves so that their faith may rest on the testimony of Scripture and not on that of the church. Now, in our study, why is this important? Well, because only the true meaning of a passage is, in fact, the Word of God. Read that again. Only the true meaning of the passage is, in fact, the Word of God. That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, talking about the writings of Paul, he says, there are things in his letters which are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So in other words, you can take the words of scripture and you can so twist and distort them and to which they destroy you. The truths you claim destroy you. Only what the author intended is the scripture. John Broadus in his book on preaching writes this, it is so common to think that whatever kindles the imagination and touches the heart must be good preaching. And so easy to insist the doctrines of the sermon are in themselves true and scriptural, though they be not actually taught in that text, that preachers often lose sight of their fundamental and inexcusable error of saying that a passage of God's Word means what it does not mean. In other words, guys, it is not enough to say something that's true and correct. If you're saying that passage says it and that passage doesn't say it, you're distorting the Word of God. You're being unfaithful. When we misinterpret a text, our interpretation is not the scripture because the meaning of the scripture is the scripture. Now, what are we talking about? when We're talking about interpretation. Interpretation is the proper use. It's the proper use of generally accepted principles to determine the one divinely intended meaning of the passage. The proper use of generally accepted principles to determine the one divinely intended meaning of the passage. This is what God intended the passage to mean. So, of course, that brings the big question how? How do we go about making such a critical decision? What are these generally accepted principles? Well, I recommend to you a number of resources. Some of them will be out in the bookstore, others you can pick up. Amazon or Christian Books or somewhere. If you don't have Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, that's very helpful. Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul is a helpful little book. Biblical Hermeneutics by Henry Verkler is good. Bernard Ram's classic book, Protestant Biblical Interpretation. A newer one, the one that's used at the Master's Seminary in uh, in their hermeneutics class is called Grasping God's Word by Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes. Those are ones where you can fill out what I'm about to tell you. But for help week to week, you're not going to remember everything in those textbooks. For help in remembering them week to week, let me reduce proper interpretation, the basic principles, to three basic principles of interpretation. If you get these three right, then you will properly interpret the text. Number one, interpret based on authorial intent. Most Christians come to the Bible as if it's a kind of Ouija board, and they look for personal messages from God. You know, this takes two different forms. Some of them look for hidden messages that have no relationship to the context. So they're reading their Bible. They come to Ezekiel 8, 5, and it says, Son of man, raise your eyes to the north, and they conclude they need to move north. I'm not making this up. People do this. That has nothing to do with the meaning of that text. That's using the Bible like a Ouija board. Another way this expresses itself is beginning with personal application before knowing the meaning of the passage. Don't ever ask first, what does this passage mean to me? If that's your approach, you can do it with any document. You don't have to do it with the Bible. A text or passage has only one meaning. Henry Verkler in the book I recommended to you says this, the primary presupposition of hermeneutical theory must be that the meaning of a text is the author's intended meaning. And this just makes sense in real life. We've just gone through this with the Constitution, right? What did the writers of the Constitution mean? There are a whole bunch of people in our country who don't care. They want what they want. They want abortion. The question is, what does the Constitution mean? Well, when you come to the Bible, the question is, what does the Bible mean? You get a letter, you don't look to say, what does this mean to me? The biblical text has only one single unchangeable meaning determined by the intent of the author. And that meaning is not found in some mystical search for what I think he might have meant. It's expressed in words and syntax and grammar. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament affirmed this principle of interpretation, authorial intent. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken not understanding the Scriptures. Jesus was essentially saying, you have misunderstood what the Scripture writer intended to communicate. He's affirming both the fact that a given passage has one meaning and that that single truth meaning can be understood, contrary to postmodernism. Well, we just need to be humble and admit nobody knows what it means. That's postmodernism. No, Jesus said, you can know what it means, and you ought to know what it means, and you're responsible for not knowing what it means. John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, It is these that testify about me. It's very possible this is a command. Search the Scriptures. Jesus was telling them to keep searching the Scripture because so far they had missed the intention of a number of passages, passages that pointed to him. And I've already mentioned 2 Peter 3, where Peter argues that Paul's letters are to be interpreted how? In keeping with Paul's intention, and to come to any other conclusion than what Paul intended was to distort the scripture, resulting in your own destruction. This is absolutely foundational. Our job is to find out what the Spirit meant through the human author and explain that to our people. John, again, an, an analogy often used that stuck with me is he said, Our job as preachers is not to be the chef. We're not creating the meal. We're just the waiter, and our job is to get the meal to the table without messing it up. That's our job. What does it mean? And explain it to your people. I I can tell you at a personal level, one of the greatest motivations of my life and why I really don't mind spending 30 hours every week studying God's Word. I mean, I love it, but, but I never want, because of my own laziness or my own carelessness or my own lack of effort, to say a passage teaches what God didn't mean it to say. When anyone abuses the Scripture or makes it say something it doesn't say, the result is not the Scripture. And Let me just stop here and say, back to Broadus' quote a few minutes ago, So many people are content with, well, it's true. Okay, but if you're sitting there telling your congregation this is what this passage means, even if it's true but it's not what that passage means, you are being unfaithful to Christ because that's not his word. You're making the the meal. You're taking the job of the chef and not the waiter. So I just really encourage you. If you misinterpret the text, what you are teaching is not the scripture. So, interpret based on authorial intent. That is foundational. Secondly, second main principle of interpretation: interpret scripture with scripture. This is also called the analogy of faith. The reformers constantly said it this way: scripture interprets scripture. Now, when they said that, they used scripture in two different senses. The first occurrence is talking about the total Scripture. The second occurrence is talking about any part of Scripture, such as a verse or a passage. So let me restate it with those senses in mind. This is how it is restated. The entire Scripture is the context and guide for understanding any particular passage of Scripture. This is based on what the Bible teaches about itself. The Bible was written over 1,500 years, from when Moses wrote in 1445 B.C. to 95 A.D., when the book of Revelation, or shortly thereafter, when the book of Revelation was written by John. It was written not only over 1,500 years, but it was written by over 40 different authors. But at the same time, the Bible is the product of the mind of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired. That's a most unfortunate translation. I'm sure you've heard this. You're familiar with it. It literally means breathed out. It's All Scripture is breathed out by God. What's the point? Right now as I'm speaking, the words that I'm speaking are the product of my breath. These are my words because they're breathed out by me. The Bible is the product of the breath of God he spoke these words. They're his words. And because of that, the the mind of God was communicated to us by the Spirit through the human authors. And and that's the point of 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, you know, we speak what the Spirit wanted us to speak. 2 Peter 1, you're familiar with that text as well. What this means is that although there were 40 authors, there was really only one author. And because that author is God the Spirit, he knew everything he wanted to communicate before he moved Moses to write Genesis. And that means that all 66 books will be internally consistent. They are the product of a single mind, the mind of the Spirit. And one passage will not contradict another but complement it. That is, here's how it works. You come to Romans and Galatians where it says we are justified by faith. And then you come to James, and James says, a man is not justified by faith alone, but through works. You know this, because it's the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit, and I say this respectfully, is not stupid. He's not contradicting himself. Our job is to try to understand what he's saying in those two contexts. And it's clear once you get into it. But you understand my point, is Scripture interprets Scripture. The implications of this is don't interpret a text in isolation from the rest of Scripture. And the clear should always interpret the obscure in Scripture. So interpret Scripture with Scripture. There's a third main principle of interpretation, and that is interpret literally. Now, be careful with what I mean here. Our position is often ridiculed by the word literal. I I honestly don't like using it sometimes because it misconstrues our position. Maybe a better word is normally. Interpret it normally. That's what we're really meaning. It means you follow the normal rules of interpreting any literature. You look at the language, the grammar, the words, the culture, the geography, the history. This is called the grammatical historical method. Now, don't misunderstand. doesn't mean there aren't figures of speech in the Bible. There aren't allegories. There aren't symbols. There aren't word pictures. Of course, there are all those things. But those things exist in other literature as well. So, as with other literature, don't miss this, we must interpret the Bible in the simplest, most literal or normal sense unless there is an indication in the context not to do so. This means context rules. What's happening in the context? For example... You know, people talk about, well, you can't interpret the Bible. Literally, look at the book of Revelation. And they point to the, the, the metaphors. I'm preaching through Revelation right now. And they, they point to these metaphors and these descriptions and say, see, you can't interpret literally. Because they are figures of speech in the Bible. Of course they are figures of speech in the Bible. But that doesn't mean, for example, that anybody thinks in Revelation 19, at the second coming, when Jesus returns, a literal sword will come out of his mouth. What does that mean? It's a word picture. We get it. He's going to fight with his word. Just like he created everything with his word, he's going to destroy his enemies with his word. Nobody's picking up a sword. And so that's normal interpretation. That's what we do with the Scripture, the context rules. Pay attention to the word, syntax, culture, and history, and pay attention to genres. What do I mean by genres? Different styles of literature and Scripture you have to be careful to interpret them in keeping with that genre. I'm not going to touch on all of these, but let me just just mention a couple of these that often are a problem. Take narrative, for example. You're reading stories in Old or New Testament. Well, narrative is not normative. By that I mean you don't read a story and go, I should do that. If the author neither praises or judges the behavior of the character, then don't say we ought to do that or we shouldn't do that. But if the author praises or judges the behavior, then it's legitimate to apply that truth and to teach it. Poetry. You know, Hebrew poetry is a unique thing. We'll touch on that in our session tomorrow, so I'm gonna leave that alone for now. P- Proverbs is a great example. The difference between Proverbs and the law is that a proverb is generally true but not guaranteed. So you can't read a proverb and go, that's my promise, that's going to happen, God promised me that. No, it's generally true but it's not a guarantee. So you have to be careful in terms of how you interpret parables. Most parables are making one primary point. So don't press all the details into some elaborate scheme. So there they are, the key principles of interpretation based on authorial intent, Scripture with Scripture, and interpret literally. If you will embrace those three principles and remember those three, they're going to keep you out of most problems you're going to run into. And then you can read the fuller hermeneutics books to get more detailed description. The dangers of interpretation, there are several common dangers of trying to interpret a passage. I've I've adapted these from two sources. Dick Mayhew's little book, now out of print, called How to Interpret the Bible for Yourself, and Fee's How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Let me just give you the dangers of interpretation. First of all, there's allegorizing, adding levels of meaning to the text, like like happened in Origen and others, where Jerusalem had four levels of meaning. Secondly spiritualizing or moralizing that is giving the text a deeply spiritual point that the original author never intended. I have to pick on somebody I love and respect here but Spurgeon I cannot agree with him exegetically that Song of Solomon is about Christ and the church. Now clearly marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. But the Song of Solomon is an ode to married love. That's why you have a hard time figuring out the relationship between Christ and like climbing the palm trees. And you know, those are images of married love. They're not images. And they're intended to make that point. So be careful not to spiritualize something. Proof texting. Stringing together verses to make a point without regard for their meaning in the context. You've heard the most famous example or stream example. Judas went out and hanged himself. Do thou likewise, and what thou doest, do quickly. You you can't just string verses together. It is appropriate to bring a number of passages together to systematize what Scripture teaches about a topic. Paul does this about depravity in Romans chapter 3, where he verse after verse he quotes about depravity from the Old Testament, but The key is make sure you know what each verse means in its context and you're not distorting it. A fourth danger is using narrative as normative. I mentioned that already. You know, just because you read it in a story doesn't mean you should do it. The most famous example is Gideon's fleece. I cannot tell you how many Christians think they ought to put out fleece. And I want to say, have you ever even read that story? You know how it ends? God is angry with Gideon because he doesn't trust his word. So... Just because it's there, doesn't mean you should do it. Nationalizing, reading one's own country into passages and promises given distinctly to Israel. This is a big problem. Um, for example, Second Chronicles, 7:14, "If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from the wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land." Well, there are implications of that verse that could be appropriate for our land, but we are not God's people. Um, Psalm thirty-three, twelve: blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. That's not America. I love my country. I'm grateful for what we enjoy, but those verses are not talking about our country. So don't nationalize scripture. Cultural backloading, taking a view popular in our culture and attempting to read it back into a passage. For example, trying to find theistic evolution in Genesis 1 and 2. That's a challenge. The approval of homosexuality in Genesis 18 and 19. There's a real hard job. You know, it's, you understand. You've read some of those things. Reading self-esteem into Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself, and so forth. It's literalizing making a figure of speech literal of course the ma- most famous example of this is John 6 where Jesus says eat my flesh and drink my blood and you know what roman catholicism has done with that but of course Jesus says the words which i speak to you are spiritual words it's an invitation to the gospel dogmatizing forcing a text meaning to fit your theological system Come to the text honestly. What does this text mean? That's interpretation. Now that brings us to the fifth and final step in exegesis. And that is evaluation. Evaluation. Now let me first explain to you how this step fits with the other four steps we've already examined. As we think about evaluation, first of all, Preparation is preparing your tools and your heart for study. Observation is observing the details of the text to determine what it really says. Meditation is thinking deeply about the text to understand it and to plan how to do it. Interpretation is using generally accepted principles to decide what the text actually means. Evaluation is comparing your interpretation against the interpretation of others. This is where you're saying, okay, I studied this, I did the firsthand study, now I'm gonna look at the experts and see if I got it horribly wrong in some way. What is the biblical basis for this step? Well, there's only one divinely intended meaning for every text, that meaning has never changed. And the Holy Spirit has always been helping believers to understand the meaning of the Scripture. Therefore, it is highly unlikely, read impossible, that you will be the first to understand that passage. So it's important to check your interpretation against those who are either more skilled than you are, more godly than you are, or both. So how can you go about evaluating your interpretation? There are two primary ways First of all, compare your interpretation of all minor supporting passages in your sermon against several good study Bibles. Look, you know, if you're preaching through the Bible, you're bringing in a lot of passages. I'm doing that even tonight. I'm bringing in a lot of passages. You can't go to every commentary you have and study all of those passages in the same depth. But at the same time, you don't want to misuse one. How do you keep that from happening? When it comes to the minor passages you're going to use in your message— just go to a good study Bible and make sure you're not twisting that passage out of its context. It doesn't take long at all. Boom, use your your, uh, your logos or whatever you've got and you can see in a moment what a couple of good resources say and you can know if you're on track or if you've missed it horribly. Then compare your interpretation of your primary preaching text And any major supporting passages. And by that I mean, it's not the main, so the main text you're preaching and any really important text that you intend to have your people turn to and you're going to track through with them. That's what I mean by major supporting passages. Against the best commentaries for that biblical book. Again, you don't have to read 10 to 15 commentaries, but on your main text, I would encourage you to do that. But on the other passages you're going to have people turn to, Just look at the one or two best on that book. And again, skim, make sure that you're not really distorting what that text means. You're not taking out of its context. How do you choose commentaries? Many of you already have developed libraries, and some of you are just beginning. I'll say you can go with some multi-volume series. You know, Kyle and Dalich on the Old Testament, the Tyndale series on the Old and New Testaments. William Hendrickson, he died before he finished, so Kistemacher finished the rest of the New Testament. The pillar New Testament commentaries are excellent. I've enjoyed the ones of those I've used. The New International Commentary on the New Testament, the New International Greek Commentary, uh, Testament Commentary, and then Word. Word is not as conservative. And in all of these cases, let me just say this. Read these books not like the Bible. Read them like a Berean going, wait a minute, let's see if this is what the Bible teaches because you will come against things in all of these commentaries that you will say, I'm not confident that's what the Bible teaches. So you, you read them, you use them, but use them with care and deliberation. You can also um, look at individual commentaries on particular books. And honestly, this is more helpful in the long run. You might want to get you one multi-volume sets uh, in addition to a study Bible or two so that there's some comment on most places in the Bible but you're gonna to wanna to really build up the best commentaries on individual books. And there are a couple of ways to learn those. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and the appendix has a list of some resources. Uh, this is dated now. Both of these next two are dated. Commentaries for Biblical Expositors by Jim Roskup. Um I'm not even sure that it's still available now. He's with the Lord but if you can get a, a copy, it's it's helpful. New, Testaments, uh, New Testament Commentary Survey by D.A. Carson, um, and, and then I would recommend bestcommentaries.com. Many of you already know that and use it, but it's a way where several lists of conservative scholars have been put together. But again, use judgment, use discretion, be careful. Not everything you encounter there is going to be true. So, You just need to be discerning. Ask others that uh, you know and respect. How do you use commentaries once you have them? What is their proper and legitimate use? Well, they provide good models of interpretation. They help with difficult passages. Occasionally you come against a passage and it's like, wow, I have no idea what that's saying. And so commentaries can help you begin to sort that out. Um, They provide, and this is really the key, they provide a check against novel or erroneous interpretations. So you do your study, you look in your commentaries, and you have five commentaries on that passage, and not one of them takes the position you've landed on. That's not a good sign. Just saying. All right. Um, And then they provide additional insights, illustrations, and applications. Some of the more devotional commentaries... Uh, I love both Lloyd-Jones and James Montgomery Boyce are great, giving you illustration ideas, giving you application ideas, so they can provide help in that way as well. Um, How not to use commentaries. Never use them in place of your own study. Never use them before your own study unless you're simply trying to get their advice about how to mark off a paragraph or a stanza or your general introduction, of course don't accept their authority as the final authority. Make the commentator prove his point. A commentator or study Bible is essentially a teacher presenting his case. He's telling you what he thinks the passage means. So be a Berean, even when it comes to the experts. Remember Acts seventeen eleven. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Luke commends the Bereans for doing that with the Apostle Paul. You're not going to get a commentary written by the Apostle Paul. So that means you need to be even more vigilant when you're using commentaries even if you had a commentary written by paul himself if it's not part of the inspired text then you should test it against the scripture and then for evaluation as you're trying to do this step avoid the merely devotional ones but rely on the more exegetical ones ones that deal with more exegetical detail in in the passages not merely devotional thoughts. As I said, use the devotional ones for illustration ideas or application ideas. And then finally, watch for guesses and conjectures without evidence. It doesn't matter that they're experts. This happens all the time. One of these guys writing a good commentary will throw something out there with no evidence to support it, and nobody else is saying that. And so make them prove themselves. Be a, be a Berean, be diligent, and, um, and use them effectively, but use them uh, carefully as well. So, that's commentaries. This is evaluation. So, let's review the whole process. Exegesis, studying the biblical text. There are five parts. Preparation, that's pretty basic. That's something you do in prayer primarily, and then you get your surroundings set, and they're set observation. This is really where exegesis begins. And just remember again those pictures. Uh, remember again those steps, I should say. Remember the big picture. Remember how it fits in the overall theme of Scripture. It's not in isolation. It always relates back to the overall theme of Scripture and to the, the use of the Old and the New Testaments. Look at the general introduction. Read through the book multiple times. Identify the, the sections and the paragraphs, the stanzas, Analyze the syntax with your block diagram so you can see the flow of the author's thought. Then identify a preliminary theme. What is this paragraph about? Write it down, a concise sentence. What is it about? Make observations, ask questions of the text. Look up all the proper nouns. Look up all the cross-references. Study the key words. Survey the historical context and establish the theological context. As I said, Five through 12 in that list is what you're going to do every time you sit down to study. And they're not going to take days to do. As you get used to this, you can do it in two or three hours. Um, and then you come to meditation and interpretation and, and evaluation. Reading commentary is going to take you a little more time, your preparation and so forth. All of that before you get to, pre- to preparing your sermon, which we'll talk about tomorrow. It's, your sermon is in process. let, Let me back up and make one important point that I'll deal with a little more tomorrow, but I think it'll put this evening in context. As you're doing all this, you need to be keeping notes. You're taking notes. If you want to do it on your computer, do that. What I do is I have a legal pad, and I have a legal pad for each section of my paragraph. After my block diagram, I do that on my computer. I copy the text into my computer at the end of that file. So, for example... If I'm going to have a sermon file on my next passage I'm preaching, at the end of that file, I'll do my block diagram. So it's always there. It's part of that file. And if I look back on that sermon, boom, there's my block diagram. It's always a part of that file. So I'll, I'll do it in Greek or, or English or Hebrew or whatever language, depending on the circumstance. And then um, I, I, on a sheet of paper, I write down on my legal pad, here's the theme. Here's the exegetical theme. And then I'll start an exegetical outline. I'll say, based on what I'm seeing from my block diagram, what's a a beginning sort of outline that the author used? Not my outline yet, not my preaching outline, but what was his outline? And I'm jotting that down on a sheet of paper. As I look up cross-references, I now have a sheet of paper for each section of my text. So if my block diagram says my text breaks up into four parts. I got four sheets of paper, and each one of those is the head of a sheet of paper, and then as I'm taking notes about that section, those verses, I'm writing them on that sheet. You know, this word means this, and it's used here, and this is an interesting cross-reference. I need to make note of that, and so I'm keeping notes on each of those sheets as I'm studying through this process, and then you're going to use that collected data and out of that collected data will come your sermon. And that's what, Lord willing, we'll talk about tomorrow. So let me do this. I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and then I'll see if you have specific questions about what we've covered tonight. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for time we've been able to spend. Thank you for your Word. Lord, what a treasure it is to us. Thank you that you have given us the stewardship over your household and dealing with your mysteries, dealing with your Word. Oh, God, help us to be faithful men. Help us to be those who are diligent, who work hard to understand what your Word means and and to put together a message that your people can understand. Father, what a a heavy responsibility and duty, and yet at the same time, what an immense joy and privilege. We get to spend our best hours with you in your word. We get to go where many of our people can't go. They're at their jobs, and instead we are laboring over your word what a privilege and joy that is. And yet, Father, we feel the weight of it. And so make us equal to this task. Make us diligent. I pray you'd use our weekend together to encourage us, to challenge us, to sharpen our skills, so that, Lord, in your purpose, our progress would be evident to those we teach. Thank you again for this time for those who join with us. Use it for all of our mutual upbuilding and encouragement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.